119. Um, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, longest single chapter. And this whole summer, pretty much, uh, except for the few weeks that I haven't been preaching, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 119. And we've, we've worked our way through most of it, uh, or a good chunk of it so far, we're probably three-fourths of the way through. Um, I'm going to have Pastor Chris is going to continue to preach in Psalm 119. I'm just assigning him the next text that he's got to do after, after I get done because uh, otherwise we're, we're going to run out of time here. It's really long. Like we got a lot to cover. So um, we're going to stay in Psalm 119 for the rest of the summer. And this is just an amazing psalm. It really deals with a lot of things, but it primarily deals with how we approach life in light of what God has shown us and said about himself to us through his word. Like we, we get to learn of who God is and then how we should respond. That's basically the point of Psalm 119. Uh, now, over the last few weeks, we've had kind of a, a mini-series within this, this great chapter, which has been dealing with the issue of affliction, uh, the issue of suffering and trials and difficulties. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been unpacking uh, what this is and what, what we should be thinking about as we go through seasons of hardship. And so two weeks ago, we started this kind of mini-series within the series, uh, and we saw how Jesus meets us in the midst of affliction with his comfort, and that he comforts us through his word, he comforts us through his presence, and he also comforts us through his people. And so we talked a lot about affliction and comfort a couple weeks ago, and then Last Sunday, we looked at how uh, Jesus uses affliction to get us to what, where he wants us to be, that he actually has a purpose for it, that nothing in our lives is meaningless. And that's really important, right? We, we can feel like going through hard things isn't doing anything. It's just harming us. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that God uses affliction to get us to Jesus and to show us what we need to learn about the things he's teaching us and to, and to get us to see his faithfulness and, his, and who he is and how he comes through. So those are the two, last two weeks. Now, but today, as, as even though we've looked at the last couple of weeks at how God responds to suffering, today we're going to look at how we get to respond to suffering. Right? I know we've kind of touched on it a little bit uh, as we've talked through the last couple of weeks, but this is all about, this, this whole passage in front of us is how do we, as followers of Jesus, embrace and respond to suffering and affliction in our lives? What should our deal be on this, right? Like, we've seen that Jesus meets us in, in comfort. We see that he does things with it. That's wonderful. That's vital. That's actually foundational, because if we don't know that Jesus is doing something in, in our affliction, we're going to be just like, rudderless ships. You know, we're not going to have any direction. We're just going to be freaking out. But if we know that God is sovereign, even in the midst of hard things, we can now go from there into, okay, here's how I should respond in this. And that's really where the text takes us. So um, starting in verse 81 here, we're going to look at four things through this, through these 16 verses, uh, four things that we should do in light of affliction in light of suffering. And look at the first. It's actually in verse 81 and the first half of 82. Here's what it says. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. 
My eyes long for your promise. So that word longs is repeated twice in this verse and a half, right? My soul longs for your salvation. My eyes long for your promise, which promise is just another uh, way of saying salvation here in this context. And so he's saying, my soul longs for those things. I'm hoping in your word, but I'm longing for you to do something. Now, when you, we don't use the word, I'm longing for something a whole lot, unless we're maybe poets or something. I, you know, we, it's just not like, just doesn't come off the tip of our tongue most of the time. Like it's kind of an over-the-top word. But, but when you say that you're longing for something, it, it means that you really, really, really need it, right? Like, you need it a lot. And that's like, it's just another way to express that, like, this, this desire, this need, this longing. And so here's what this is pointing us to really simply. It's, it's that we need to acknowledge in the midst of affliction, we need to acknowledge our deepest need is Jesus. In the midst of our affliction, our deepest need is not that we get out of this affliction. Our deepest need is not, I just need to have all this fixed in my life. That would be really nice, right? And of course we want that, but that's not your deepest need. We need to acknowledge in the midst of suffering that our deepest need, our, our deepest longing should be Jesus and the salvation he has for us and the hope that he gives us and the promise he's made to us. Him, Jesus himself should be the longing of our heart, our deepest need, our deepest desire, and that regardless of what may happen in our lives, we will have Jesus, and that's enough. That's hard, right? It's hard to see that in the middle of something really difficult. Absolutely, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to heap guilt on you to go, if you feel like you need something other than Jesus, you're a bad person or a bad Christian. No, like, listen, not at all. There are, there are seasons in which these things become more clear, and there are seasons where things are a little bit more chaotic and like, okay, I get that. But, but fundamentally, when the dust begins to settle in your life, we need to acknowledge that our deepest need, our deepest longing should be for Christ himself, not just for deliverance from the suffering we're in, but to, to know him truly, to have his salvation in our lives, to know that his word speaks truth and life to us. This is what Jesus gets us to. If you want to look, I don't have these up on the screen just as a heads up here, but um, I have some New Testament passages to take us to. And when you look at Matthew 11, uh, 29 and through 30, 29 and 30, we, we actually see that this is what Jesus wants from us. Uh, so if you have a Bible on your phone or the paper Bible, you can turn to Matthew 11 if you'd like. But here's what Jesus says. This is one of my favorite verses. It's actually, we're going to start in verse 28. I don't know why I wrote 29 in my notes here. Um, 28 through 30. They're familiar verses probably to, to some of you, but here's what he says. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus offers an invitation to us. And that invitation is what? Come to me. Now, who is he, who is he saying needs to come to him? He says it. All who are, uh, well, the, my translation says, all who labor and are heavy laden. Other translations use the words who are weary and burdened. I actually like those. I know NIV goes that route. CSB goes that route. ESV uses labor and heavy laden. That's fine. It's not like it's wrong. Um, but I just think that the, those who are weary, like you're exhausted. You know, labor kind of gets to that, but it's not quite on the nose, right? Uh, when you labor, you get tired. Well, Jesus is saying if you're weary, if you're exhausted, if you've just come to the end of yourself, if you've got nothing left in the tank, You need to come to me. And what will he give us? He says it. And I will give you rest. And he tells us then to take his yoke upon us. Now, a yoke is an instrument of, it's a farming instrument. It was was this kind of sideways eight-shaped thing where you'd put two uh, animals' heads through and then you'd kind of tie these oxen, mainly oxen, together. And those oxen would drive the plow, right? This was before tractors and whatnot, right? So you'd use this oxen, team of oxen to pull the plow, but often they would use a, a yoke to, to attach a younger oxen to a more experienced oxen, and that older, more experienced oxen that knew how to pull in the straight line and not get distracted by, ooh, the squirrels or, oh, the food over here, right? He would keep that younger, smaller oxen in line because of the yoke, right? They're tied together, and they'd, and they'd teach that younger oxen how to plow a field. This is how it worked. And Jesus is saying, so you've got to take my yoke upon yourself. Follow me. Listen to me. Have me be what you need to instruct you, teach you, lead you in the way you need to go. This is what Jesus calls us to, right? To acknowledge that we need him and we need him at the most deep level of our hearts. That it's, that it's him, his salvation, his promise, his word that we need fundamentally in the midst of trials. And Jesus invites us to come to him to have the rest our hearts long for when we are weary and when we are absolutely overwhelmed. That is the context of that passage that Jesus invites us to come to him. He doesn't say, come to me, all of you who are self-sufficient and have figured out your lives, which by the way is no one, but we can deceive ourselves into thinking that it's us sometimes. He says, all of us who are weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest and I will teach you and I will put you in the yoke with me and we're going to go. We're going we're gonna to plow together through this field. That's, that's the promise we have from our Savior. But we need to acknowledge his, our deepest need for him. That's number one. All right, let's keep reading though. This one, I really like this. Uh, verse 82, second half of 82 through 88. So kind of a, a decent chunk here. Here is what it says. The psalmist writes, I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. What in the world does that mean, right? Oh, we'll get to that. Hang on. I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? 
When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They, they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Here's one of the things I love about the Psalms. Uh, and this is throughout the Psalms. You just see such brutal honesty between the psalmists and the Lord. They don't seem to present their lives before the Lord like it's all fine and dandy, like they have no complaints. Actually, there's a lot of psalms that are just complaints, just complaining to the Lord and saying, Lord, why are you doing this? How long do I have to put up with this? Why is this going on? This is a common thing throughout the Psalms, and we're seeing it here. The he asks numerous questions, right? He says, I ask, when will you comfort me? So that's the first question, right? When will you comfort me, Lord? When are you going to show up? Meaning, he's not being comforted yet, and he wants to be comforted, but he's not getting that comfort. So he's asking the Lord bluntly, when are you going to show up and comfort me? And then in verse 83, he uses this very strange uh, idiom. Well, it's an idiom. It's, it's something we don't really use a lot. But it's, he says, I've become like wineskin in the smoke. And I was like, what in the world is that? I've never heard that phrase before. But basically here, this is a Hebrew idiom that, again, they, they lived in a time when they, there wasn't a modern era when this was written, right? So basically what he's conveying here is that a wineskin uh, being exactly what it sounds like, it's, it's skin, it's like a leather container that you'd put wine in. Well, if that container is exposed to smoke for a duration of time, it dries out, right? Smoke dries things out. We know this. This isn't rocket science. And that wineskin, that leather wineskin becomes cracked and brittle and becomes useless ultimately to hold the wine because it becomes too dried out. <clears throat> and so when he says, I become like wineskin in the smoke, what he's saying is, he's like, I'm all shriveled up and I'm dying here, Lord. My, my soul is dead inside. I'm, I'm just like dying here. And we wouldn't use the idiom, I'm like wineskin in the smoke. We would use, I've got nothing in the tank. Or, man, I just, I can't do it anymore, right? We would, we would say these kind of things, but that's the, that's the mentality he has. And he's using a strange phrase to get there, but that's the point. He's telling the Lord, I've got nothing left. I'm, I'm just, I'm done. I, I've got, I'm just, I'm just totally dried out. But then he says, I haven't forsaken or forgotten your statutes. Even though he feels like everything is not going well, he still knows the Lord's word is true. And then he goes from there in verse 84 to continue to ask questions. He asks two more questions in verse 84. How long must your servant endure? Meaning, how much longer do I have to suffer like this, Lord? How much longer? When will you judge those who persecute me, is the next question. In other words, what? Why are you letting these people harm me so much? When are you going to show up and stop them? And then he talks about these people for a little while in a couple verses, right? He's the, verse 85 through 87, basically he's just laying out how, they've, how the people around him have done so much harm to him. They've dug pitfalls for him. 
They persecute him with falsehood. They lie about him. They've almost made an end of me on earth. And he's going, how long are you going to let these people continue to do this to me? Here's the thing, right? Like, I love it. I love the Bible because the Bible is so honest and it doesn't sugarcoat life. It, it's, this is showing us something that we need to apply to our lives. We need, just like the psalmist here, we need to express to the Lord our concerns and our hurts and our doubts. See, I think sometimes we think God is like us and if somebody said to us something hard, we might go, oh no, they don't like me or I'm not, I'm not what they want from me. And we get a little insecure. God is never insecure. He can handle everything you throw at him. He is not sitting on the throne in heaven with his enemies as his footstool, wringing his hand going, oh no, Tom doesn't like me today. He doesn't do that. He's not worried about that. What he is worried about is my heart and he wants my heart to be drawn to him and he's okay if even if that means my heart is pouring out to him my anger and my confusion and my frustration. Those things are okay and we, we need to, to see the Psalms as a guide to this kind of life. Like I'm not saying you should perpetually and constantly live in a state of anger towards God. Obviously, we need to pivot from that and move past it. But if you are in a season of suffering and there's nothing but confusion in front of your face, then it's actually genuine for you to say to the Lord, you know what, God, I don't get what you're doing here. And I wish you would come through and do something with this. I wish you would just show up and, and make something happen here. It's not wrong for us to do that. It's biblical because we have many, many hundreds of examples in the Psalms of these things happening where people are expressing their longing to the Lord. Even their doubts, right? The, these are questions. These questions are not just hypothetical questions. They're like, I am not being comforted, so when are you going to show up and comfort me? I am not... Uh, enduring very well, so how much longer do I have to do this? <laughs> these are the, literally, these are the questions. And so we need to learn that in the midst of suffering, we, we have to acknowledge that Jesus is our deepest need, but we also need to acknowledge that Jesus is a real person who's alive today. He was crucified and risen, and he's on the throne, and we get to go to him. We get to approach him with boldness th to the throne of grace that we might find help to in, in need, right? That we might find our help. That's what Hebrews tells us. And so we need to go to Jesus as a real person, a living person, and express to him our concern and our hurt and our brokenness. And guess what? He can handle it. He doesn't, he doesn't sit up there in heaven uh, worried about your opinion of him. He knows he can get you to where you need to be. And what he wants from you is your heart. He wants your honesty, so a couple places to take you in the New Testament for this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, and then 1 Peter 5, verse 7. But Philippians 4, verse 6, again, probably one you've heard before. You've probably seen it on a coffee mug or something, and 
Um, that's okay, right? As long as it pivots you to the right thing. Um, but let's start in verse 4 just so we have um, the context here. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is here, you guys. So this is what Paul's saying, right? Like, rejoice in the Lord always, which means we should rejoice in the Lord in seasons of hard things too, right? Always means good and bad. But then he says this. Here's why we do that. It's because the Lord is here. He's at hand. He's not absent. So verse 6 says, Because the Lord is at hand, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, you're seeing the, the, the call, right? That, we, are, we have a, a God who is here, he's at hand, he's with us, he's a real person who's alive. And just like any other living person, you can talk to him anytime you want, right? And so it says, here's what we should do in light of that. Don't be anxious about anything. Easier said than done, right? But this is what we're... So instead of the anxiety taking root in our lives... We should in everything, meaning in our anxiety, in our fears, in our doubts, in everything, by prayer and supplication, by prayer and supplication, which supplication is another fancy word for prayer, right? Asking God to do something. With thanksgiving, which is another type of prayer, right? You're thanking God. That's a form of prayer. Let your requests be made known to God. And as you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. We need to express our concerns to him in prayer. We need to come to him with our fears, with our anxieties, with our doubts. Go to him and talk to him about it. This, I know this is like kind of one of those, well, yeah, obviously kind of things, but how, how quickly we ignore it or forget it or choose to just stew in our fears and worries. Peter says it, Similarly, but a little differently, in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, he says, we'll read verse 6 to get the context. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Then he says, Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So if you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman, right, you know, casting, you're, you're throwing it out, throwing it out. What are we to cast to him? Our anxieties. Some translations I actually like a little better. He says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. The things you care about, the things you're fearful of, the things you're worried about, he wants those things. He wants you to come to him with those things. It's a way to humble ourselves before him, right? That's what he starts with in verse 6. It's humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. How do we humble ourselves before the Lord? We cast our cares on him. Because by not holding our anxieties inside, 
but giving them to the Lord is a way to humble ourselves before him and say, I'm not, I can't fix this, Lord. I can't change this. I can't do anything with this, so you have to take it. I'm going to cast these things to you. I love the Bible for these reasons, that he just, it just is so honest and gives us real help. Like these are simple things. Nothing I'm saying to you is probably blowing your mind with I've never heard this before. I should pray? What? Like you know this, but we need the reminders that that's what God wants from us. He wants us to talk with him and talking through things with him will help us in our trials, in our afflictions. All right, let's go to the third thing though. Got to keep rolling here. Verse 89 through 90 the first half of 90, okay? It says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Let's read that again. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. So let's follow the train of thought here. Okay, let's follow the train of thought. We've seen in verses 82 through 88 the expression of our concerns to him. But now there's a, there's a flip side of the same coin. When he says, forever your word, O Lord, is fixed in the heavens, what we're being told is that Not only do we speak to God in our struggles, but we have to let him speak to us. We need the Lord's word, which is firmly fixed, eternal in heaven, right? It's forever. God's word is always God's word. It doesn't change. It doesn't alter. It's not adapted to the times. It is forever and eternally true. It is, all, it is timeless and timely. Right? It is timeless and timely. It's timely because it speaks to the needs we have right here and now in the 21st century, but it is timeless because it speaks to all generations forever across the board. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens and his faithfulness continue, continues to endure through all generations. So here's the point. We express our concerns to him in prayer and then we let him speak to us through his word. We need to let Jesus speak to us in the midst of affliction. Because if, hear this, if your voice is the only one you're listening to when you're struggling, you are going to be struggling forever. You need the word of the gospel. You need the faithfulness of God to speak into your situation and say to you, I have this under control. I sent my son to die for your sins because I love you. You need to hear again and again the words of his promises. You need to hear from him. 
it's wonderful we, that we get to speak to him and he hears us and wants us to express our concerns. But if we're just constantly living in our own heads and not going to God's eternal word for, for hope and help and wisdom and all the other things that it offers us, we are going to be spinning our tires forever. We will never get traction. We'll never move past it. We, we won't get healing if we're not letting Jesus speak to us. And I get it, you're here, you're at church, right? And you're listening to a sermon right now and you're going, all right, check that one off the box. That's not enough, you guys. Like, it really isn't. I think, I, I think the, obviously the local church is vital to your spiritual life and your growth in Christ. I fully believe that. I am, I am a churchman through and through. I believe the church has a role to play in all these things. Uh, however, one sermon once a week where you are getting into the Bible and you're listening to some guy talk to you about it is not going to sustain you in your life. Just like you're not going to eat one meal a week and go, all right, I'm good. I never have to eat again this week. You don't do that. I know you don't do that. You know I don't do that. You're just looking at me. You're going, yeah, that guy knows. That guy knows what he's talking about on that. We, we, we don't just eat one meal a, a week because our bodies need fuel and sustenance and, and your soul needs it too. The, the Bible is God's word and it's described to us as the bread of life. It's described to us as our, our very food, right? Jesus tells Satan in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Jesus was starving to death in the desert and he could have take, taken stones and turned them into bread and had a meal. And Satan wanted him to do that in his own strength apart from God's will. And he said, no, because you know what? Life is more than food. What really matters is that our souls are alive and well-nourished. You guys need to be in the Bible. You need to. And I'm not saying that to the detriment of the local church. That's a manipulation of these things. And I've heard many people over the years say it. Well, if I'm reading my Bible every day, I don't need to go to church. You do. You do. This is fellowship, ministry of the Spirit of God through, through the preaching of his word. These are valuable, vital things to our lives. But it's not all you need. It's some of what you need. But it's not all you need. You need to be in God's word. And I'm, listen, you guys know I'm no legalist here, okay? I'm not saying you have to get up at 4 a.m. every morning, read for two hours before the kids get up, and, and that's all you got to do. Like every day, 4 a.m., read the Bible for two hours. Now, if you want to do that, excellent. It's not going to hurt you, right? But that is not what I'm, that's not what I'm advocating. What I am advocating for is you need to have a consistent source of God's truth in your life. And if that means you read for five minutes before you get your kids off to school or go to work or whatever it is you're doing, then that is, is wonderful. You can start there. Read a chapter in the Bible a day. It won't take you that long. It'll take you two or three minutes depending on the chapter. Maybe not Psalm 119, but most of them will take you us a few minutes to read, right? Get it in every day if you can. But I'm not, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to prescribe to you how to do it or when to do it or when it's best. That's totally flexible. There's no passage in the Bible that says you have to have a devotional quiet time every single day of the week. That's not something the Bible says. That's something we've said. But here's what you do need. You need the scriptures to speak to you. Why? Because they're God's word. And if you're just living in your own head, and not listening to what God has to say, 
you're not going to see much progress in your life. You just won't. We need to let Jesus speak to us. And we need to recognize that everything in the Bible is about Jesus. Even those hard passages that we don't know what to do with, they are about Jesus somehow, some way. They point us to him. But here's what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us about this. Hebrews 1 starts out this way. This is how the whole book of Hebrews begins. I love it. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, meaning right here, right now, right? We're in the last days and not in a weird, like end timesy kind of way. But the fact is we are in the days between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return. The New Testament calls that the last days, okay? So, so far the last days have been pretty long, like 2,000 years long, right? And who knows how much longer, but that's where we are. So in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So what's that saying to us? Saying we need to get to Jesus. The word of God points to Jesus. And Jesus is the final word, the final word from God for us. Okay. So acknowledge our need for Jesus. Express our concerns to him in prayer. Let him speak to you through the Bible, because that's the source of God's word that we have, the Bible. One more. Verse 90, second half of verse 90 through the end here, 96. It says, You, Lord, have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. All right, so here's what this is telling us. Um, It starts with, you have established the earth and it stands fast, meaning it stands secure. And then it says, by your appointment, they, meaning the world, stands to this day. For all things are your servants. And then he goes on to talk about how the law, or hit, which is just an, an Old Testament way of saying God's revealed word, what he says about himself, is the hope we have to know him. And then it talks about his power to save us and his ability to be overwhelming in all the things he does. So here's what we need to see from this. We're seeing two things kind of one category with two subcategories, all right? The main category is this. When we are suffering, when we are in affliction, we need to trust in Jesus's power. How do we know that Jesus is powerful, though? Gives us two things. 
He created the world. Did you do that today? No, me neither. Jesus did that many, many years ago. And that's amazing because all he did to create the world was he spoke. Did you create, any, create anything by just talking? No. And that would be crazy if you did, right? That's the power Jesus has. He's powerful in, and he proves it in his creation. And he's powerful and he proves it through his salvation. Verse 94 says, I am yours, save me. There is confidence in God's power to not just create, but to save. Now you might be thinking, well, the psalmist isn't talking about Jesus as the creator. He's talking about God the Father. And yeah, we, can, we could say that. I mean, there's, it's absolutely true that all three members of the Trinitarian God that we worship and know from the scriptures created the world, right? We know God was there, the Father was there, Jesus was there, the Spirit was there. But, but it's interesting to notice. We actually just saw it in Hebrews. It was kind of the tail end of that verse I read that he, Jesus, created all things. But, but there's, a, there's numerous places in the New Testament that gives Jesus the credit for the creation of the world. And one of them, I think, is most profoundly seen in, in Colossians chapter 1. This will be our last passage that we look at this morning before we close. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. And what we're going we're gonna to see these two things. We're going to see Jesus' power in creation, and we're going to see Jesus' power in salvation in this passage. So look at how Jesus is described in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. You can't see God. I can't see God. But Jesus was a human being. He became a man. God entered into human form. So, he, so even though he was veiled, his, his godness was, was veiled in human flesh, human form, human body, it, he was still fully God, even as a man, right? God, he didn't, it wasn't a man who became God. He was God who became man and didn't lose any of his godness. He lost, his divinity is the fancy word for it. He didn't lose any of his divinity, but he had full humanity. So this God-man is the image that we could see of the invisible God. And then it's, he's described as the firstborn of all creation. Now, this, there's, a lot, there's a raging debate about what firstborn of creation means because some, some groups that are not Christian groups would say, um, this guy, this is saying that he was just the first creation, like he was an angel or something and he was created. Firstborn doesn't mean that in, when you get down to the, to the original language. It isn't talking about firstborn in the sense of the first created thing. It's talking about firstborn in the sense of authority. Okay? The firstborn in this Greco-Roman society, and even before that, the firstborn was in charge, whether you liked it or not. Right? And I'm the middle child, so I'm out of luck. I'm not the firstborn, and that's okay. But th- that's what he's, it's about the authority of Jesus over all creation, not his place in creation. So that's important. That's, man, we could talk about that all day, but we'll, we'll move on. And so, so he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, here's why he is the authority of all creation, the firstborn of all creation. Because by him, all things were created. All right, so let me ask you a question. If Jesus was firstborn in the sense that he was the first creation, how does the first creation create everything? 
right? Like, so the, the whole logic falls apart when that's your interpretation of this. It has to be about the, the issue of authority because by him, all things were created. All things, which means he was eternally existent with God the Father and the Spirit of God, eternally existent in the heavens. Don't, don't think too hard about that. Your brain's going to explode, right? But that's, that's what it's saying. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him. He created all these things. And then look at this very important phrase, and for him. God created, Jesus created all things. We don't have a problem believing that. But he created them for himself. Everything that exists in the world is for Jesus. It says he is before all things. And then notice this. And in him, all things hold together. So this is telling us something vital about Jesus. It's not that he just created it and walked away, but he creates it and he sustains it. He's holding it together. That means your body is held together by Jesus right now. The atoms that make up everything in the world are being held together by the active power of Jesus in the world. That is amazing. So that's, that gives us a little glimpse of Jesus' power in creation. But then it goes on to his power in salvation. Look at what it says, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. So he's not just the head of creation, he's also the head of the church. He's in charge of the church. He's the one we listen to ultimately in the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, meaning he was the first one to be raised from the dead, truly raised, and in everything we might, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making blood by, uh, making peace rather by the blood of his cross. And then he talks in verse 21 and following about how we were dead in our sins and Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross, makes us alive. Okay. Here's the thing. If this is the God we have Fundamentally, let me ask this. If this, is the, if this is true of Jesus, why are we so afraid? Why? If Jesus is the one who created all things and in him all things hold together, and he's the one who died so that we could be brought into this life with him, if this is true, why are we afraid? I'm not saying that to shame you if you are afraid. I'm just trying to press into that in your heart and go, why are you afraid? If this is your God and he loves you and he's with you and he's ultimately for you, he's not against you. He loves you and he's for you. And he's the very God that created the world, sustains the world and did all that was required to bring us safely to salvation. To me, as we're going through trials and struggles, this is where we anchor our lives. We trust in the power of Jesus, not, not just hypothetically or theoretically, but practically we trust in Jesus' power 
because there's nothing he can't do. There's no chain he can't break. There's no person he can't heal. I'm not saying he will do everything we want him to do in the way we want him to do it. God is sovereign. He gets to, char- he get- he gets to be in charge. He won't heal every person who prays for healing. Not in body, but he will absolutely heal every person as we go into glory with him. That's true. And he will give us glimmers of that here and now in our earthly lives. But listen, he has the power to do all things. And that's somebody you want on your side, right? And we want to trust in him in light of that. I hope you do. I hope you trust him. If you're here and you're not sure about any of this, that's okay. We are glad you're here. But we hope that this begins to stir you a little bit closer to who Jesus is and what he does. He wants you to come to him. Let's go back to the beginning of this whole thing, right? He wants you to come to him because you're weary and you're burdened. And he wants to offer you rest. You come to him by expressing your concerns to him. You come to him by letting him speak to you. And you anchor all these things in who he is and his power in your life. Okay? That's what I've got for us. So let me pray and we'll go on from there. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent Jesus in love to us. And that you would have your very own son, this sovereign God, become human form and die in our place and rise again from the dead. We pray that these truths would rest in our lives and anchor us to you, uh, that we would take what you've shown us today and that we would move a little bit more closely to you through them. We pray, God, that in the midst of affliction, we would not throw in the towel, but that we would continue to press in to you. I know there are people in this room right now who are just under such weariness and burdens. And you know every heart in this room better than anyone else. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just empower us, comfort us, show us the love of Jesus. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.